I'm from the east side of America, where we choose pride over character. And we can pick sides, but this is us, this is us, this is... You're listening to The Weekly Brew with Austin Staten, Jeremy Paxton, and Hunter Atkins. It's time to sit back, relax, and be informed. Don't believe the narcissism. Welcome to episode 123 of the Weekly Brew Podcast. My name is Austin Stat, and I'm here with Jeremy Paxson. And of course, you might be wondering, why haven't I heard you guys in the last few weeks? And we are taking a little hiatus, a little a little break, podcast 24-7. You've got to take a little vacation time. Me, myself, I was uh, over in Europe again. Yes, the second time in three months. And uh, Jeremy, you were uh, in New Orleans this past weekend. Is that right? I mean, yeah, for the record, I was in New Orleans, but this weekend but the rest of the time i've been locked in my apartment doing nothing but anxiously waiting for the next episode of the you can record Brew. a podcast yourself i i really can't i i'm <laughs> i'm I, i'm in no i'm without you with me i'm in no mental shape to record a podcast i'll, so. I'll take that as a compliment yes I've, right. <laughs> I've 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 long i've i've awaited your your return and so here we are we are here in fact we are at kirby ice house uh, recording a uh, you know the intro and outro at uh, the outdoor portion of the bar. So if you hear a little wind, if you hear little dogs barking, that's the reason why we are enjoying a few brews while we record this podcast. But here in just a few moments, uh, Ben DeBose is going to join us to talk about the streaking Houston Rockets, who are currently leading the NBA with the best record, uh, surpassing Golden State Warriors in the first half of the, uh, I guess, the NBA season. So we'll talk with him about the Rockets and how they look uh, heading into the back half of the season, making that final push toward the postseason. Can Houston bring a second title home within a 12-month time span? That, that to me, would be remarkable to see you know, the NBA championship it come just, here to Houston as well. It just feels good to hear that we're ahead of the Golden State Warriors. It's right not by now. much. Yeah. I mean, but still, like, we're... We're doing better than them. that. Just and if you paid if you paid attention to the podcast last year, you will know that Jeremy became a huge fan of the Astros as the postseason no, 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 geared on, up. Hold on, he's hold about on. to become this the. Is not the, factually no, accurate. No, you're about to become a huge fan of the Rockets. I'm here not. In a few weeks. No, I, I will. I will not wear one red piece of garb for as long as I live. That I'm, that, that time for me is. Has long passed. They I have was, other colors too. I was Clutch City fan, right? Back way you back in the day. You don't support the beard. What? You don't support the beard or Chris. I Paul? support the beard. I support Houston. Therefore, I support the beard and Chris Paul. And I, I think they're great. I just I'm not a basketball fan. I, I do love college basketball. I do love my Baylor Bears, and they're kind of up and down, as you so know. So here's the thing. Okay, as we are recording, Baylor has won five straight games. They are now, you know, kind of inside the bubble for the NCAA tournament, but. You mean for the NIT championship? Yeah, but, <laughs> uh, you know, something that's kind of interesting to me about college basketball is I think we were having this conversation last year with Hunter, who, by the way, is in uh, Florida right now covering spring training for the Houston Astros. Uh, Hunter was suggesting that college basketball is boring, and I, I didn't agree with him. And I, I told him that, you know, it's about the pride for your school, your university. But the more and more that I've watched college basketball this season – I kind of get where he's coming from. I mean, there's not a lot of consistency. The offense is subpar. Defense is subpar. And when you see a team as good as the Rockets play 82 games and you get to watch them on television night in and night out, you really get to appreciate good basketball and what it looks like. And college basketball is just not a good product. You're right. And I think that there there is a – okay, and I'll, I'll say this as an amateur sports fan, but there's a level of professionalism to college football that you don't see in college basketball. There is way more inconsistency. You can see really – mediocre teams come in and beat a number one on a good day in college basketball. Yeah, there's so much parity. Right, there's so much parity, whereas... And that part's fun, I get that. Yeah, but in college football, I mean, 
I don't know. Like, the, I don't see the the huge talent jump from college the in, to to the professional level in college football that I feel like you see in college basketball. Well, so there, so there, many there, college there basketball is, players never pan out. There is a huge talent jump. Yeah, but. I, I get what you're saying. You know, for example, Butler a few years ago, they made it to back-to-back Final Fours. You would never see a team that's like the eighth seed in the East, you know, win back-to-back championships in the NBA, at least the way it's structured right now with so much dominant teams in the West, and then, of course, LeBron and Cleveland in the East. You just wouldn't see that. Right. So I guess, you know, you can see the underdog win in the NCAA. It's just it's a poor product. It's a lesser product. Right. Shout-out to Butler, though. I really enjoy seeing them <laughs> win. I, I, I hate Kentucky. I hate... North Carolina, like all of those, you don't like the blue bloods. I don't like the blue bloods, and it's 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 the it's the fans that bother me the most, especially the all of the Twitter reactions from the fans of these schools. It's just it's just it's nauseating. Well, well, speaking of the blue bloods, did you hear this report from Yahoo Sports last week, in which said that nearly fifty schools could be under investigation by the FBI and the NCAA, and there uh, the report suggested that. nearly half of the 16 teams that were projected as the top 16 seeds in the tournament a few weeks ago by the NCAA could be facing, you know, uh, abandoning wins, could be having players get suspended. The timetable was uncertain, but it was a really, really fascinating article discussing the problems with amateurism in, in college sports. And that's something we discussed with Chris Handel, uh at the end of last year, but it, it's something to keep an eye on. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good point. I, it, amateurism in college sports is kind of a joke. Um, I, I think, you know, doing this podcast even has made me do my own research into this, and it is completely, it, it, it's a complete farce. And um, I, had a, I had a sociology professor in college. He was like, you know, we, we, we pretend that these guys are student athletes, but when in reality, they're athlete students. And to illustrate his point, he passed every single Baylor athlete that was in the class, even though none of them showed up for the required amount of classes. I mean, the guy was a piece of work. But well, I mean, but that a, goes a, to illustrate as Chris a point. Said the players aren't athlete students; they're not student athletes; they're property. Right. Exactly. Well, and, and to, to, to that, you know, as you know, an addendum onto that, you you go to all these schools where you have these professors that are pressured by administration in the athletic department to give guys passing grades even though they're not doing the work they're not showing up to class and because it's not about at the end of the day it's not about school it's not about getting a degree it's about what they bring to the table how much money are they making that school on the on the field so um yeah i it's it's a huge problem but like not really surprising here's my bigger question for the fbi why are we focusing so many resources on policing amateur sports when I feel like there's bigger fish to fry. Well, it's because there's money laundering. Well, sure. I, I, I get that. But it's, it's just crime. like, it, and, and again, I, that's, that's totally reasonable. I just, I, I feel like with recent news headlines being as being what they are, yeah, I, I see what you're saying, but I mean, there are different parts of the FBI in sure, charge of yeah. fighting different crime. And, and that's what this, maybe this portion of the FBI is actually good at what they're doing. Yeah. And, uh, I, I just, I, I, I'm not sure exactly what to expect because um, this is pretty unprecedented, the number of schools and the number of players involved. But um, we'll just have to see how it all pans out. But from a casual observer's perspective, you wonder what the FBI is doing given all of their recent mishaps that are so visible in the media. I would like to see them take down Kansas, take, take down, down Calipari in Kentucky. I'm okay with that. I would be okay with that. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's make uh, it happen. FBI, if you're listening, if you're wiretapping this, if you're, I don't know, putting it through your, uh, you know, national security servers, investigate they, those schools. They listen to everything, as does the yeah, NSA. I, I, they're all avid listeners. Yeah, that's I, what I Edward Snowden told us. <laughs> that's what, or Julian Assange, <laughs> whatever. 
But all right, so you know, uh, you know, this is the uh, middle of February, and of course, the Winter Olympics are going on right now in South Korea. Uh, U.S. is not doing the best when it comes to the medal count. Like right now, I think they're sitting in sixth in the medal count as we are recording this podcast. Uh, Jeremy, have, have you watched the games at all, or has it just kind of been an afterthought to you? You know, being the typical millennial, I don't, uh, I don't have cable service, and so anything that I've seen have been on clips and from the internet and just news stories that I've, I've written, or not that I've written, that I've read. Um, but do you find an interest in it? I, I don't. You know, the Winter Olympics, for, for whatever reason, you know, we were talking before the show about the time slot and how it's not conducive to primetime ratings. You know, I, I feel like if right, there I was a... Pyeong, Pyeongchang is 13 to 14 hours ahead of the United States, at least the central time zone. Right. And so you, you see the tweets, you see the headlines, and then you get to watch the events. And I found I find that very anticlimactic, you know, when you're... You know, when you're tuning in every night at 8 p.m. and you know that event is happening in real time, that makes it exciting. But when I already know what's happened, I don't really care. And, and to be fair, we've seen more live results in this Olympics. You know, we've seen snowboarding decided during the day over in South Korea, which is the nighttime over here, prime time. Uh, we've been able to see hockey games live, but it just it's it's not that exciting right now. It's not that exciting, and 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 I was I was reading an article earlier about how ratings are kind of taking a dip. They're they're about as bad as Sochi in 2014, but the Winter Olympics just don't do it for people. Uh, I think in the especially U.S., especially in the South. Yeah, especially in the South, we don't really have any emotional, visceral connection to winter sports. Um, you go up north, I'm sure the ratings are better, but it's just interestingly I, I, enough, Austin, Texas has a top ten ratings here in the United States. I think I think of the major markets, Dallas and Houston out of the 55 measured markets are like 47 and 48. That's really interesting. I wonder what Austin, I wonder if it has anything to do with political affiliation or could, could maybe, maybe hipsterness. Yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe, not, maybe curling is big in Austin. I don't know. <laughs> Speaking of curling. Yes. I know where you're going with this. Wasn't there uh, some sort of doping yeah, scandal? So really, but cur- for, for, the, for for viewers who don't know, curling is a is it's a Scottish sport, if I'm not mistaken. I didn't know that. Yeah, it was it, it originally me. in Scotland, and and it, it consists of brushing ice and stones being thrown. It's and like shuffleboard to, on ice. Yeah, it's like shuffleboard exactly. So what? What does doping do for someone doing that? Because I look at it and I'm like, it's it's an endurance activity, but it doesn't look that intense. Does it? I don't know. Does the drug like help you maintain your balance a little bit better on the I ice? I have no clue. Does it allow it's, you to sweep harder and do chores a little bit faster. It seems like it's more about coordination than actual physical endurance. I, I could so. be wrong, but, but at, like, at the same time, you could argue that with Barry Bonds in baseball. Like you know, it's it's very very difficult to hit a, a home run. I mean, you've got to you've got to be able to see the, it's the hand eye coordination. That's about power, though, right? That's yeah. about power. That steroid is going to give you that edge that you need to hit that ball out of the park with with curling you're you're maybe, scrubbing maybe, ice maybe maybe it's recovering from cramps going down the ice you know steroids help you recover a little bit faster maybe that's it or maybe steroids like get you all hyped up for that fight in the bar after the event because people <laughs> can make fun of you for it's, curling. it's a beer league right it's a beer league but it's actually quite popular uh at least in this olympiad but you know kind of to your point uh the curler that has been uh tested positive for uh, steroids I don't, I don't know the name of the drug off the top of my head it's from Russia, and if you'll recall, a few weeks ago on the podcast, we discussed, uh, you know, the the Olympic Winter Games and how the International Olympic Committee banned Russia as a country from competing. Yet we see all of these teams competing under the Olympic flag with the name Olympic athletes from Russia. Right, right. I, I mean, does having a Russian athlete test positive just, you know, almost delegitimize the IOC and what they've done to punish 
the Soviets. You know, it's it's funny you say Soviets. a little bit, but I, I, I sympathize with the athletes from Russia that have been clean and then have not participated in that. I've seen some of them uh, perform. I saw a finger skater perform. And I have to think how many hours that girl spent on the ice in Russia only to have her country's flag stripped away from her and her country officially not be able to compete. But she's allowed to compete. Well, here's, here's, here's the ridiculous thing. is There have been rumors that the IOC is actually going to allow Russia to march under their own flag during the closing ceremony. I mean, do you, do you have any thoughts of that? I, I think it's I think it's bullshit, to be honest. I think that's ridiculous. I don't think that they should allow them to do that. I imagine that, that the Russians are exerting some sort of political pressure on the IOC to do that. Uh, at the same time, though, um, with with as much influence as the Russians are purported to have in this country, it, I guess it's not surprising, right? I mean... Yeah, that, that's fair. <laughs> that's fair. So... Um, I feel for the athletes that, 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 weren't, that were doing what they were supposed to do. But at the same time... I mean, the, the consequence needs to feel painful enough to the, where they get their act together, and this doesn't happen next time. Yeah, and, and kind of some of the other storylines that have, I don't know, put a damper on the Olympics for me have been North Korea's presence at the Games. And, uh, you know, North Korea, uh, Kim Jong-un sent his baby sister to the opening ceremony. She sat right behind Mike Pence, right next to the, uh, you know, the, 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 the leadership for South Korea. And she drove rave reviews from you know the national media here in the U.S. I oh, the likes just, of I CNN, the, the rest of them. Oh, Reuters, AP, everyone. Oh yeah, they uh, they, they they solidified their their gutter status, with, but by the headlines that they wrote about this woman talking about how she's stealing the games and not referencing the millions of, of people that North Korea it's a sham. has in literal concentration camps. It's 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 insane to think that these people could be pom pom cheerleaders for a regime that is is ex- extremely brutal and is there she is there to 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 sow division between the US and the South Koreans and and, and that, that's just and the media is allowing it to happen exactly well because I, because whether you want to agree or not the olympics it's all political right i mean going back to you know the the cold war it was political between the US and Russia and sochi with you know uh, you know the, russia's views on gay marriage and in homosexuality it was political for the united states there's a reason why when Joe Biden went over there, he brought over Billie Jean King as, you know, one of his ambassadors for the U.S. Right. Um, there's a reason why Mike Pence had the father or the, the father of Otto Wambier in the box sitting. Oh, next absolutely. To him. That was uh, really powerful. Yeah. Abs- and, yeah. And, and so it, it's political. And in South North Korea, you know, during the Olympics in the 80s that were in Seoul, they wanted to deter the Olympics from taking place in Seoul. So they blew up an airplane. Now they took a different approach. Instead of hard power, they've been exercising their soft power through diplomacy. And it's working. Well, it's a, it's a charm offensive. I, I, I honestly don't That's think... That's a great term. I, I don't think that people honestly know... I don't think the average observer who's not reading the news really understands this. I, what does bother me is that national media outlets are willing to throw Mike Pence under the bus because he's vice president of the United States under Donald Trump. They're willing to throw him under the bus to prop up this dictator sister who is literally she she's an, she's an informant for him and that's that's widely known this none of this stuff is none of this stuff is opinion this is this is factual so i what 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 bothers me is the fact that, that they have an option not to write a headline like this and they choose to do it anyways when all they they, they don't have to prop him up it, it, you can write a headline criticizing mike pence but you don't have to prop up the North Koreans and, at the same rem- time. Remember what we talked about in episode 100 of the podcast when we had Jim Bowden on? We discussed North Korea and you know his article in the Atlantic Monthly. 
we asked him specifically about the Olympics and if, if it was going to be a threat, you know, a security threat. And his answer was no, because he said that Kim Jong-un is going to use this to his advantage. Right. And right. that's what he's doing. Right. He's, he's using it as an opportunity. There's no doubt about that. And uh, nobody's calling his bluff. Right. I, I, I think, though, if you're, if you're looking at what does this mean for U.S.-South Korean relations, um, the question will be, do, do the U.S. and South Korea still hold these joint military exercises, which were sort think, of on the horizon? I think they horizon. are scheduled to hold them in April. Right. So we'll see if right. those go through. Right. And so that that was sort of the, the objective, or at least that's what I've read, was the North Koreans are attempting to disrupt right. that. But right. No, I, I think I, I think if anyone is to be condemned here, it's the U.S. media for propping up this, this dictator's sister. So. Speaking of dictators, Jeremy, uh, I'm sure you're aware that over the weekend uh, there was an indictment in the United States. And since you are the expert on all things Trump administration, well, I won't go that far. Go ahead and give a brief synopsis of what this indictment was and what it means. Yeah, so uh, Robert Mueller in his investigation, he indicted 13 Russians. Um, and actually, the, the actual charges were like mail fraud and identity theft and some other sort of offhanded things that you would think are just sort of weird in a case like this like they weren't charged with sedition or anything like that so um but yeah they were charged with uh subverting the the u.s electoral well they were sorry i guess the the idea was that they were trying to influence the election right but what they were doing is they were buying facebook ads and creating these fake groups to sow division among americans right it wasn't uh, the report states very clearly it wasn't to support one candidate over the other. I mean, they supported, you know, Bernie. Yeah, they supported Bernie. Say. They supported Hillary. They if, supported if anything, Trump. you could say the Russians just didn't like Hillary. Yeah, and so what was so weird is you look at some of the Facebook groups they created, and they're like painfully awkward, even for people who agree with what they might be saying. It would. It one of them was like, um, you know, patriotic Americans for Jesus or something like that. It was like a super awkward. Facebook group, and so uh, they, to my mind, none of that was effective. They blew a whole bunch of money Facebook's way. Well, they only they only spent a million dollars, and for yeah. the amount of chaos that it's caused since then, yeah, it's a good investment. <laughs> it's, it's, it's absolutely it's a great investment. So I I, I think that it's I think, a, it, I think it's, it's wrong. It's, and I but it, it's scary to think that there's a foreign government out there that can have that much power to create distrust, controversy scandal uh all of that within a different country i mean it's, it's a new well, form of military action here's okay so here, here's where i come on this is it is it because there, there, there's been a level of a foreign inter in, intervention in our elections for a long time now it's has it been effective in swing our election likely no and it was there's no way that this to move the needle for anybody i, I do want to talk about that for a second I, I'm, I'm gonna interrupt you because I posed this question the other day. You know, something that I do at my work is I, I, you know, have some role over social media. For this podcast, I have a role, you know, working our social media pages. When we create ads, you have to target them. You have to geo-target them. You have to be specific on who your audience is. So if I create, uh, you know, a pro-Bernie Sanders ad... I'm not going to be targeting that to Hillary Clinton supporters, right? I'm going to be targeting it to those people who already support him. And so it's just creating more information and propaganda that those people want to hear, that those people want to consume. I mean, I, I don't think it's any... I don't know that it truly moves the needle that much. I, I, I don't like the fact that Russia is doing this, but 
I would like to see some sort of statistical test to prove, you know, to, to I don't know, somebody to audit Facebook ads and to see if they actually do make a difference. Like, I see, you know, maybe if there's a product that you see on Facebook, maybe that catches your eye that you're not familiar with and you want to try it out. But I think people have so many preconceived notions nowadays that seeing a, a Facebook ad or a video isn't really going to yeah, do it much doesn't. to change people's yeah, minds. You're right. I, I see what you're saying. And it really doesn't. I, I think that people are sort of, the internet has created these echo chambers where we all live. And, you know, for better or for worse, you're sort of insulated against dissenting opinion and information within them. So do I think that Russia in creating these really poorly written and poorly constructed Facebook ads and groups that they sway the election or actually create division? No, I don't think that they did. I do think that Facebook has a responsibility as an American company to safeguard its platform against this sort of intervention by a foreign government in an election in the country that it, it originates from. Well, here, here's the issue that I have with the Trump administration right now. The, the Trump administration is not coming out and denouncing Russia. That's a problem. Like, Trump needs to come out and say, not, like, not, not push the blame on somebody else, not try to gloat and say there was no collusion. I don't know that there was collusion. You know, the, the document, the indictment said that, you know, it was unwittingly, if anything. So I don't know that there was collusion. And, and of course, the investigation's not over. But here's the thing. Even if there wasn't collusion, Trump should still come out and say it's not acceptable for foreign governments to meddle in our elections. Well, I'll tell you one reason he might not do that. And that's um, the United States has a hand in, in meddling with the elections of other foreign countries oh, for absolutely. better or for worse. And most notably, the Obama administration uh, funding funding actions against an opponent of Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel back when during his re-election campaign so who netanyahu is also in some hot water right no that's yeah that, that's that is true he's he that's in the here nor there but i i think one of the reasons he might not do that is that it invites a lot of it invites an accusation of hypocrisy in a part of the united states i mean we we i think the best that we can do and the best that the trump administration can do is take take measures to safeguard our electoral process of which i don't think anything undue or 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 illegal or whatever occurred in this last election. I think that what was going to happen was going to happen regardless of whether Russia tried to interfere or not. And it's fair. They've been in, they've been trying to interfere for a long time. Um, well, they ha- they have. It's just this is the first right. time they've this used social the fir- media as the platform. Right. And that, I was going to say this is this is nothing Which is something new for that them. It, th- what makes social media different is that if Russia interferes in other ways say in the 1980s, 1990s a lot of people just don't know about it, right? Right. Or they're not cognizant well, it's, of it. Well, it's through like but, CPUSA right, or but, something but else like that. But now you have so many people that are aware of social media, and so they feel more connected to that meddling. Right. Well, if you I, will. I, it, look, I, I, I'm, I haven't seen anything tangible to put our hands on, you know, to say it's that... because you only read Breitbart. No. Come on, man. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Sorry, only drudge, read Breitbart. Drudge. Only read Breitbart. Well, you know, you know who, who Drudge links to? The New York Times, the Washington Post. Uh, the Washington Examiner, you know, all all these, uh, the Chicago Tribune. I mean, this is you know, Drudge is just an aggregator. But 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 the point, but but the point stands that I don't think I I agree that Russia should have no part in our electoral process. They should not have an influence. We should do everything we can to safeguard against it. But you know, I've got to ask. Well, all this was going on. I mean, certainly there must have been some level of awareness within the FBI that this was occurring. I mean, we've and, seen they've been negligent in the past few exactly. weeks. Exactly. Well, you know, I mean, who's who, the administration 
prior to this. Who who was responsible at that time for safeguarding the election? I mean, it was Comey. Yeah, it was the elector. It, it was it was it was the Obama administration. It wasn't it wasn't Trump. I mean, he was a candidate. So, I mean, there's. I, I always go back to this this comment, and I'm going to play it right here. This is Mitt Romney, right ahead of the 2012 election, and during one of his debates with Barack Obama. Russia, I indicated, is a geopolitical foe. Not a, I'm a one. Excuse me. It's a geopolitical foe. And I said in the same in the same paragraph, I said, and Iran is the greatest national security threat we face. Russia does continue to battle us in the U.N. time and time again. I have clear eyes on this. I'm not going to wear rose colored glasses when it comes to Russia or Mr. Putin. And I'm certainly not going to say to him, I'll give you more flexibility after the election. After the election, he'll get more back. All right. So in 2012, as you just heard from the audio, Mitt Romney suggested that Russia was the greatest geopolitical threat to the United States. The Democrats laughed him off. Now, now there's it, all this saber rattling on the Dem- yeah on the it's, Democratic it's arguably side. That you know that, that that's it's true. hilarious. It's argu- it's arguable that Russia is the greatest geopolitical threat to the United States right now. I I disagree I, I'd with maybe that. Suggest I, China. I, I would say China absolutely. But no Russia, no no China. Russia, yeah, Russia is certainly uh, top two or three. Russia is an agitator. But Russia, because they can get away with it, and we see well, get away with it from the Olympics, right? So. Right, and and I, I think Russia is an agitator. But if you're looking at the at the bigger picture, what what actually presents a threat to the United States and its and its interests around the globe, it's China, absolutely. I mean, they've this is an odd thing to source, but John Oliver Sunday night, not sure if you saw it, but he actually discussed that uh, that China, when dealing with international meetings. Will send you know anywhere between twelve to fifteen to twenty representatives, whereas the United States will send one or two. Right. And in and, and China is flexing their muscle. They own a lot of our debt. They are continuing to grow military. They like, steal our technology yeah. any chance they get. Absolutely. And they have one hell of a hacking system up, which can, you know, destabilize the United States currencies, everything. So, yeah, I think China is number one, but Russia is certainly up there. For the Democrats to laugh it off in twenty twelve, it's it's kind of funny to look back on now well I, I think i think all of this you know this indictment being kind of as silly as it is in my opinion i have to ask the question is the Mueller investigation a purely political affair in other words mm-hmm. is this really about law and order is this really about getting about seeking out the truth and getting so. justice or so. or is this about nailing or is this about some elaborate um effort to bring down the trump administration and impeach him if the Democrats are to take the House and the Senate in 2018. Time will tell. We'll see. Right. I, I think it's really fascinating to follow, to be right. honest. And I know our listeners are probably sitting there like, come on, guys. Come on, guys. Get to the Ben DeBose interview. I want to hear about the Rockets. We'll get to Ben in just a moment. Again, Ben does great work for Locked On, Pod- uh, Locked on Rockets. Not Locked On Podcast, but Locked On Rockets. Uh, provides so much great analysis. You're going to hear that in just a few moments. But... I don't know, Jeremy. I, I mean, this is the first time that we've recorded in probably about a month. I mean, uh, there was a week after, probably about three weeks ago, where I sat down with uh, Jake Kaplan, uh, Hunter Atkins, who, again, is in spring training, and then uh, Derek Fogle. This is the first time we've been together, and I feel like we could just keep on going and going and going. But we've got to get to the interview. We've got to get to the interview, and we've got to talk about the thing that everyone wants to talk about, namely sports, right? Rockets, spring training. Even a little football here and there. I got to talk with some people about football over my New Orleans break. Not so, that so, that's so, here. So we will do that. 
Right. Neither here nor there. We will do that over the next few weeks. We will talk about all of that. We want to give you insight. We have, you know, uh, in the city of Houston right now, you have the Astros defending their World Series champions as they start spring training. You've got the Rockets down the home stretch trying to, you know, clinch that number one seed in the postseason. Uh, Texans are the Texans, but, you know, it is what it is. Uh, poor Brian Cushing. Yeah. No, poor, poor I mean, Brian he's Cushing. Dope. He's a doper. Yeah. I don't feel bad. I don't know. I, I met him one time. Nine years. He really, a lot of money. He was a really nice guy. Yeah. I have to say. I, I was his barista at Starbucks a number of times. Did you get a picture, autograph, or anything? I, d- I did not because it was sort of, I, I did misspell his name on a cop to see what he Ooh, if he would say anything. Big he mistake. Did, he didn't. Spelled it with an E instead of an A. All right. All right. So <laughs> on that note, uh, if you don't follow our work, just search Weekly Brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Also, you can subscribe to our website at weeklybrewcast.com. But, uh, Jeremy, without further ado, it's time to get to our interview with Ben DeBose from Lockdown Rockets. So it's time to sit back, relax, be informed. You're listening to The Weekly Brew. Joining us now on The Weekly Brew podcast is Ben DeBose, who uh, it does great work covering the Houston Rockets here in town. And and Ben, we are currently at the All-Star break, but it sounds like you couldn't get enough of basketball and are actually on your way back from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, how was the game between LSU and Mizzou today? Uh, good, except for the Mizzou homer and me. At one point loss for Mizzou, ultimately a good game, but uh, LSU went on a 4 nothing run in the final minute. To uh, take it by one, it, it's it's a frustrating game. But if you know much about Missouri basketball, and I'm a Mizzou grad, for anyone who doesn't know that, although for those who follow me on Twitter, I'm sure they get uh, their fill of Mizzou basketball and then some from following me. <laughs> but uh, it, you know, for for Mizzou fans, after the past three years, it's just good to have basketball relevant again. You know, it's one of those things. It hurts like hell to lose a one point game, but to actually be in a position in late February in which the game actually matters in the first place. Uh, that's one of those things. It's a bitter pill to swallow, but it's a lot better than being irrelevant, which is what Mizzou had been under the Kim Anderson era the last three years. Yeah, college basketball, it's getting down to the heat uh, as, as we approach March Madness here in just a few weeks. Uh, my alma mater has a big game prior to when we're recording, and that's Baylor against Texas Tech, so we'll see how that turns out. But, uh, Ben, one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on this week is to talk about the Rockets, and you just talked about you know relevancy in basketball, and I think the Rockets are you know quite the relevant team in the NBA this season as they uh, come out of the All-Star break. They are 44-13. and 13. They have the uh, the best record in the NBA. I think a lot of pundits prior to the season were a little skeptical on you know the, the Chris Paul acquisition, how it would work with James Harden. Uh, everyone knew the offense would be good, but uh, did you even think that this team would be forty four and thirteen at the All Star break with a half game lead on the Warriors? No, I didn't. I thought they would be good. I was higher on them than most folks, but I thought the number two seed at least over eighty two games was a reasonable ceiling. While I never expected them, and I still wouldn't say I'm over 50-50 on them beating the Warriors in the playoff series, I was always in the camp that, hey, if you're healthy and then you have their variability because they shoot so many threes, I was always thinking there's a shot that they could, while underdogs, still take four of seven in the playoffs. But that basically taking four of seven in the playoffs was a lot like more likely than actually being level with them or better over 82 games. To be where they're at now is just phenomenal, and certainly Chris Paul is a big part of it. But I would say overall, it's just the, the depth, because you mentioned the defense and what makes them such a unique team and better than they were a year ago. It's not just that you have Chris Paul and James Harden and this laser-efficient offense. It's the depth of quality defenders. You added Luke Bamute. You added P.J. Tucker. During the, the season, they've added Gerald Green, Joe Johnson, Brandon Wright. Not that all of those players are 
enormous pluses on the defensive end of the court. But what you have now, especially following the trade deadline and the ensuing buyouts, you have a roster that is legitimately 12 deep. So if there are injuries, like what's happened recently with Trevor Ariza and the hamstring, you can withstand that without overextending anyone. And in terms of the guys who are plus defenders, guys like Ariza, Luke Bamute, P.J. Tucker, Chris Ball, who doesn't get talked about nearly enough for what a difference maker he is defensively, even compared to Patrick Beverly, he's still a big upgrade. So in general, yes, they've added more defensive pieces, but just adding defensive pieces, they've just gotten deeper overall. It's incredible to think, you know, the playoffs last year, when after the Nene injury, you had literally a seven-man rotation, which is all that Mike D'Antoni could trust in that playoff series against the Spurs, and now all of a sudden you've gone from that to a rotation now, when they come back from the All-Star break, that's legitimately 12 deep. And so, yes, they've added, you know, they've added more talent, certainly, but just because of the depth, it allows what talent they have to be as efficient as possible. And I think maybe that's what I and under other people underestimated. I wouldn't say I necessarily underestimated Chris Paul because I was bullish on that from the outset. I guess the way it's worked out even better than I had hoped is that I think because of that depth, even when they have injuries, and they certainly had their share this year, we mentioned Ariza lately, certainly James Harden, Chris Paul, they've each had next and you know week or two stretches where they've missed games. But because of the overall depth, they've been more immune to the injuries in terms of the effect of that. And then everyone's just had a lot more energy and spring in their step. And that's reflected in a lot of ways, but certainly the improved defense is a big part of that. I want to touch on the depth for a minute, because like you said, last year, that was just a huge issue when Nene went out in the Spurs series, and especially that last game in which the uh, the Rockets were on the home court, got in, you know, sort of embarrassed by the Spurs. James Harden didn't look good, and that's sort of been a knock on him. You know, He puts up these MVP caliber regular seasons, but in the postseason, he tends to struggle a little bit. And I think part of that is probably because the depth, you have to play more defense in the postseason. You know, Going from that seven-man rotation to a 12-man rotation, does that allow Harden to have more rest and perhaps, you know, be more efficient offensively in the postseason? I think so, too. It also gives you so many more options. Like, there was a stat that Zach Lowe of ESPN put in his weekly column yesterday, and I retweeted it on my Twitter timeline, at Ben Dubose, which is that Harden, in terms of defending in the post, is actually one of the best in the NBA. Their opponents are only shooting, like, I think it's below 35% against him. It's like the third best in the league of defenders with at least – 50 post-up possessions against them. Just phenomenally good in terms of his post-defense. Also, 18% of the touches in the post against Harden have resulted in turnovers. And so you look at that and you say, well, why wasn't Harden defending in the post before? And the reason that they couldn't do it in the past was because, well, last year, if you put Harden in the post, then what that means is that you're going to have Ryan Anderson guarding someone on the perimeter. How do you think that's going to go? Not well. Yeah, and, and to this point, the depth is so much what they've been doing lately, and I don't think it's a coincidence at all. I think it's very much by design. They're bringing Ryan Anderson off the bench and starting T.J. Tucker. Now, when Ariza comes back, it is going to be interesting to see, do they keep starting Tucker at the four, or do they slide by Mute over there? We'll have to wait and see. I don't think Mike D'Antoni's going to tip his hand until that first game after the All-Star break Friday against Minnesota. But where it ties into Harden, and I think overall efficiency, is that, yeah, there are ways that you can play to his strengths defensively, which is that he's a lot smarter than folks think. He's a lot stronger, certainly, than folks think. He just doesn't necessarily have the lateral mobility with his feet, especially with the workload that he's asked to carry on offense. But in the past, because of the lack of depth, you, you couldn't really ask him to do that because, again, you know, you say, well, Ryan Anderson's a liability. Another reason you put Ryan Anderson off the bench 
is because we know what a weakness he is defensively. But if you bring him off the bench, all of a sudden he's going up against the team's backups rather than their starters. So you can mitigate what his, you know, deficiency is while accentuating his strength, which is ability to shoot. And of course, this ties into the Harden thing because now you have more flexibility, more matchups you can play to his strength. Right. And so, yeah, I think there's a, you know, there's kind of an, an initial wave of how that benefits you, which is the matchups. And then secondly, uh, you know, yes, I do buy in general that it can make James, it can make Chris, it can make everyone more fresh so that you don't have the fatigue issues that happen really not just for James, but it seemed like that entire Rocket team towards the end of that second round San Antonio series a year ago just seemed to ha- hit a collective fatigue wall. And but certainly the lack of rotation, as we mentioned, after the May injury, they were down to seven players. I definitely think that was a pretty big factor in it. And it's one that Fortunately, it does not seem like it's going to repeat itself this year. Yeah, we, we kind of know, you know, the, the highs with the top of the rotation, of course, with Paul Harden and Capella are playing. I think the record is something like 26 and one or 27 and one, something absurd like that. Uh, but the back end of the rotation, I, I think that's where, you know, it is the difference maker for the Rockets this year. Of course, picking up Gerald Green, uh, you know, off of his couch in Boston. That was just a, a hell of an acquisition by Daryl Morey. Uh, but the two guys that joined, uh, you know, the Rockets this past week, Joe Johnson and, of course, uh, Brandon Wright. Uh, what can you tell me about them? I mean, they have limited minutes, uh, you know, in the final game before the All-Star break, but how do you see those two guys impacting the Rockets as we move into the second half of the season? Yeah, it's going to be very interesting because right now you have your original nine-man rotation, which is, you know, a man deeper than Mike D'Antoni usually likes to go, especially over the course of his career. He's an eight-man rotation guy. Well, now, once they get back and have Trevor Reason, Eric Gordon, minor injuries to play, but they'll be healthy after the break, you've got your original nine-man rotation, plus Joe Johnson, plus Gerald Green, plus Brandon Wright. And it's going to be interesting because you're certainly not going to play 12 players every night. So there's going to be a big battle as far as can those guys get in the rotation. And while you know the Rockets are a good enough team, I don't expect any kind of clubhouse turmoil in terms of guys making a fuss about not getting minutes because if the team's winning, you know everybody gets it. That's a priority. That's one of the benefits of bringing in veterans. But at the same time, it's going to be interesting to watch how Mike D'Antoni handles it with – Joe Johnson in particular, the key word that I go back to with him is trust. What's different about him? I would say he's another option at this stage in his career. He's 6'7", but the thing about him, he's 6'7", he's 240. He is very, very thick. So he can shoot the ball, but above all else, Mike Antoni trusts him. That's that word. He said it several times in his debut on Wednesday, in which he literally had not even gone through a practice with the Rockets and ended up playing 31 minutes. Because, of course, Mike D'Antoni, trust him, shows 36 years old. He played for him 12 years ago in Phoenix, knows the system, knows the NBA. So, essentially, at this point in his career, 6'7", 240, at 36, he has lost a step. Especially in the Rockets system, he's a small ball four. Well, how does that fit in? Well, right now, you've got Tucker and Bob Mute, who, as we mentioned, are your more defensive options. You have Ryan Anderson, who's your shooter. But if there's one thing we've noticed about Ryan Anderson this year, it's that he is very inconsistent. Right. There was a 25-game stretch in which he shot, like, 36% from the field and 28% from three, which combined with his defensive deficiencies is just not good enough. So where I think Joe Johnson fits in, he's a hedge. He gives you some immunity to where if Ryan goes in a, uh, goes in a funk again, the Rockets are not as tied to just having to roll him out there for 25, 30 minutes a night. I think that's where Joe Johnson comes in is he's a hedge on Ryan Anderson, a guy who can shoot the ball very well, but even at 36 years old, does have a little bit more mobility than Ryan, more flexibility. And 
again, can mitigate the impact of a, uh, of a Ryan Anderson slump. Brandon Wright, it's a little simpler. He's just a different player than Nene at that backup center spot. Nene had more of a traditional big below the rim. We saw in the, in the, in the postseason, excuse me, last year, we saw how he turned it up before his injury. That series in Oklahoma City, he was massive in that. But there are certain other matchups where it may be less about the back to the basket game and more about what Mike D'Antoni calls vertical spacing. Can you make the defense respect the threat of that lob on the pick and roll? So I think where Wright comes in, I don't know that you'll be playing three centers. I think that's an awful lot to ask to fit in the rotation. But there are some matchups where Nene is not quite the, the athlete enough to, you know, to, to finish in the lob game to be a difference maker. So where I think, um, Wright plays in, maybe there's some matchups and I can say the Warriors might be one of them where you need that threat of vertical spacing to unlock the defense, a guy that can, is athletic enough to finish on lobs around that pick and roll, uh, in which Chris Paul or James Harden is the primary ball handler. And so I think that's how they envision Brandon Wright fitting in. It's kind of a more athletic option than Nene if the playoff matchup calls for it. Yeah, it should be interesting to see how those two, you know, tie into the Rockets organization, uh, especially in the next eight games. It's uh, it's it's a more difficult schedule coming out of the All-Star break. But uh, really quickly, again, we are recording this prior to the All-Star game, so we don't know the results. Ultimately, it, it doesn't really matter. Uh, it, it's just a glorified practice. But uh, James Harden, you know, he uh, so far this year, he's front runner for the MVP, averaging 31-3, uh, five rebounds a game, nine assists. He's shooting nearly 45% from the field uh he had some remarks on saturday suggesting that he was a little disappointed that uh he was the only rocket actually representing uh the organization in the all-star game on sunday and you know he suggested that chris paul should have also gotten the nod uh do you agree with him that uh you know paul was snubbed or any of the other rockets were snubbed and ultimately uh, does it matter for uh the team are there extra benefits you know being around those types of players and perhaps getting intelligence as kobe bryant said on sports center about his what was it 1996 all-star appearance against michael jordan i agree with him certainly you look at a team that's 44 and 13 the best record in, in the nba there's a lot more than one player on this squad you look at the warriors who are now a half game behind the rockets who have four all-stars compared to one uh with the rockets i know james harden is great but he's not that great that would be like the greatest season in the history of sports if that were true and uh, of course the reality is that chris paul should certainly be an all-star based on his efficiency. But the reality, I have a tough time getting too worked up about it. I understand what James's position is, and in terms of dominance, he's right. The reality, though, the way these all-star teams are selected, especially with the coaches ballot for the reserves, everyone is looking for – there's lots of qualified players and only 12 guys per conference, so it is a very high bar to clear – and no one wants to hurt anybody else's feelings. So what these voters are looking for is plausible deniability. How can I leave someone off and have a reasonable excuse? And Chris Paul, he has missed 15-plus games. And I know that's only like a quarter of the year, and he's been phenomenal in the other ones. But then when you compare it to other guys who are right on the cut, especially like a Damian Lillard, and I suspect that the last spot probably came down to Paul and Damian Lillard, well, Lillard's played most of the year. He's also allegedly been a snub the last couple of years. And it's just much easier for Chris Paul to be the snub because you can say, well, he didn't play in enough games. Right. And, of course, Chris Paul, 30, 32 years old. He's been in lots of All-Star games in the past. So I guess where I'm going with this, if that, James is right, I would argue that Chris Paul, relative to Damian Lillard, is the more impactful player. But we can't be naive to the fact that this voting, it is a political process. And it's just more politically tenable 
to leave off a 32-year-old Chris Paul who happens to have missed about 15 games and maybe a younger player who's been out there the entire year. And in the case of Damian Lillard, there was actually a leak the weekend before the ballots were were cast that he expected to be left off again that he had been in previous years. It's one of those things, James is right, from a strict basketball X's and O's standpoint, Chris Paul deserves it, absolutely. You don't go 44-13 and 13 ahead of the Warriors who just won All-Star. But in reality, when you have coaches and people involved in the game casting ballots, there's always going to be political elements to it. And I think at 32 years old, missing some games, uh, Chris Paul is just kind of a victim of the politicization of it or, or whatever you want to call it. He deserves it, but at the bottom line, he's 32 years old, and at this point he's had enough all-star accolades. I don't think it really matters to him that much. The Rockets are more worried about what they're going to do in the playoffs than anything that happened this weekend in L.A. And I'm sure Dan Tony's probably excited that uh, you know his, his point guard gets a little bit of extra rest heading into the second half of the season. But uh, you know, as we do come down the home stretch again, the Rockets uh, in first place over Golden State. Uh, what do they have to do to uh, not be complacent and to continue to push Golden State and, and perhaps uh, you know capture that one seed? What's going to be difficult for the Rockets? Their first eight games out of the All Star break are all against playoff contenders or better. Some of them being a lot more than that. So it's going to be a very tough stretch. I think it's culminated by uh, that it's, or I think one is a road game, but you have the Celtics and Raptors. You start with Minnesota. It's going to be a tough eight games. None are gimmies. Oh, and the, the team with the weakest standing, I believe, in their first eight games is, out of the break is the, all, is the Utah Jazz, who enter on an 11 game winning streak. Right, right. So it's not going to be easy. The schedule is tougher for the Rockets than the Warriors, so I think that's kind of perspective that everyone needs to keep in mind. I think what's going to be interesting to watch is kind of the rest versus rust, because you have all these new pieces that you're getting. We mentioned Joe Johnson and Brandon Wright earlier, but you're also going to be integrating Trevor Ariza, who has not been in the lineup for a couple of weeks because of a hamstring. You're going to be bringing back Eric Gordon, who's had some minor nicks and bumps the last couple of weeks, first the back, and then he missed the last game before the break with a bruised knee. So it's going to be a delicate balancing act for Mike D'Antoni. Do these guys that haven't played in a while, do they come back rested or is there a little bit of rust because they haven't played that many competitive games this month? And then, of course, how do you balance the need to get those guys back in the lineup while also getting minutes to, well, the guys like Luke Bamute and P.J. Tucker who have filled in bigger roles in these injuries and also the new guys, Joe Johnson and Brandon Bright. So it's going to be kind of a juggling act. I don't have that many concerns about James Harden and Chris Paul. They are what they are. But in terms of the role players, you know, are they rusted or are they rusty? That's going to be a theme to watch. And if there is some inconsistency there, does Mike D'Antoni have the right touch? You know, does he push the right button to make sure in a given game, you know, this is a game where maybe he needs Joe Johnson, a little bit more Joe Johnson and a little bit less Trevor Ariza or, you know, the reverse. There's just, when you have 12 quality players like they do now after the acquisitions, I mean, it's a blessing, but it can also be a curse. And that makes you, it makes you uh, have to make some very difficult decisions. And so I think that's going to be the thing to watch because certainly playing against better opponents, the margins of error are going to be very slim. So we're going to learn very quickly uh, who Mike D'Antoni can trust and whether he uh, has the magic touch so to speak, in some of these games. Of course, the Rockets return to the Toyota Center after the All-Star break, and that's Friday night, February 23rd, against the Minnesota Timberwolves. Tip-off is at 7 p.m. But, Ben, if we're having this conversation in June, right before the NBA Finals, who are the two teams playing in that final series, and who do you give the edge to? I'm going to be I, I'm gonna be a cop-out. I'm still going to say the Warriors and the Raptors. I 
and, and a lot of people say, well, why don't you give the Warriors benefit of the doubt and not say Cleveland? And my, my response, I know what Cleveland did at the trade deadline. It's going to take more than a couple of days for me to think that they have fixed their issues. When you look at their point differential, it's been a very different year in Cleveland from the normal where they can just turn it up in the playoffs. And Toronto's level of dominance in the East, I know what their playoff struggles in the past have been. It's pretty strong. The Rockets, I will say, I'm up now to where I think the Rockets have a 40% shot, I would say, against the Warriors in a best-of-seven series. And in my opinion, that's a phenomenal increase from where I was at the beginning of the year, which was somewhere closer to 10 or 15%. But the Warriors, four Hall of uh, – well, I shouldn't say four Hall of Famers, but four All-Stars, multiple potential Hall of Famers, it's just such an overwhelming amount of talent. And the Rockets, for all of their depth, for all of their accomplishments thus far – only have two guys of that level. While it's possible for them to beat the Warriors, it's, I've got to see it before I say it's better than 50-50. So, you know, yeah, gun to my head, I still say Golden State, Toronto, but I'd say the Rockets' chances have definitely at least doubled from what I thought even a couple of months ago. Definitely an exciting time to be a Houston sports fan, especially after what the Astros did in their postseason run, bringing a world championship home to the city of Houston. And hopefully the Rockets can have similar or, you know, success or a run or at least have a competitive series against the Warriors. I think a lot of fans would consider this season a success if they're you know able to bring and, and push that series to seven games. And who knows what can happen if that's on the home court here in Houston. But uh, Ben, I, I really appreciate you taking the time and joining us on the Weekly Brew podcast this week. And you provide a ton of uh, amazing content and analysis during the games and the NBA season. And, and for our listeners out there that you know might not follow you already, what is the best way for them to connect with you on social media? Twitter is certainly the best way to do that. I'm simply at Ben Dubose, B-E-N-D-U-B-O-S-E. And if you want slightly less frequent updates than that, I also run the uh, Locked on Rockets Twitter handle, which is where we send out our website news, postings, podcasts, everything we do covering the Rockets over at Locks and Rockets. So yeah, at Ben Dubose and at Locks and Rockets, those are two best ways to uh, get a hold of me, both on Twitter. <laughs> when you say that you tweet less frequently on that page, Locked On Rockets currently has just signed 650 tweets, and Ben DeBose has nearly 90,000. So if you want the content, I suggest going to follow at Ben DeBose. But uh, Ben, I really appreciate you joining us today. Sure thing. Glad to be on. Closing time. An amazing interview, a great interview from Ben DeBose, Locked On Rockets, dropping the knowledge on what Houston fans can expect as the Rockets make a push towards the uh, the postseason. And honestly, there's a lot to be excited about. And I was really impressed with Ben. I mean, he dropped so much knowledge in such a quick time frame. That's when you know it's a good interview, yeah, right? Exactly. Yeah, it's when they, yeah, I, I was I was listening to it. I'm really excited to see what James Harden's going to do in the postseason. Well, I, yeah, exactly. I mean, we talked about that. He's got to step it up. Which, let's be honest, let's look at the past. It's not he always, struggled. Yeah. he struggled. And, you know, I, I say that. I say that as a casual observer, but you know what? If if you see me wearing a red shirt, you're gonna know it's because this this an, this anti basketball <laughs> fan has become impressed enough to watch the Rockets and actually tune in to see what they're doing. Yeah, and of course the new acquisitions that they made uh, with Joe Johnson, Brandon Wright, uh, you know, going along with Gerald Green, who they acquired uh, a few months ago. 
It's really going to help them go a long way. Of course, the the rotation now is 12 deep instead of 8 deep like it was last year. So that really gives the Rockets a little bit more strength. But, you know, also on the basketball front, we do have the NCAA tournament coming up here in a few weeks. So we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that as we get closer to, you know, the tournament time uh, and to see which teams are on the bubble, which teams aren't, which teams make it in. Of course, the Final Four this year is in Texas. It's in San Antonio. Hopefully our Baylor Bears make it. But also, if you're a Houston Cougar fan, the Cougs. Ranked number twenty three in the country right now. They just knocked off the number five team in the country last I week. I saw that. No, that's that's amazing. You know what? I'm you know who what team I'm rooting for. I'm rooting for Team FBI, Austin. <laughs> I'm rooting for Team of FBI. You would. They're they, they're the team that has my best interest in mind. You know, when when I think back about all the pain that Baylor has gone through in college basketball, you want sweet sweet. Revenge. A lot of it is self inflicted, but I'm excited to see what our our Federal Bureau of investigation can do on the court. We'll, t- we'll see. Time will tell. I'm sure Yahoo Sports will have uh, that. We'll continue to discuss as news breaks on that. But I definitely like the uh, the segue here. And you're laughing off mic right now, but I think that should be on mic. But, uh, Jeremy, it's great to be able to sit down. Again, we are at Kirby Ice House right now. So if you hear a little bit of wind, if you hear dogs barking, people talking, those are our fans, people. Those are people listening to us. And uh, we've had several people come up, uh, you know, uh, during break and talk with us, ask us a little bit about the podcast. So shout out to all of you who have stopped by and uh, talked to us. Leave I, us a review. I think it's worth saying that one of those people was a dog. Yeah. Um, yeah. So well, they they know our official mascot is Bo. So yeah, that's true. Um, the other person was the waitress coming up to see what our our drink order was. No, she came up and was like, "Do you guys host a podcast?" Oh, that's right. I'm sorry. I and forgot about that. I, I wanted to say like radio show. That was the first thing I wanted I know, to say. Right? Like, Wouldn't it be so yeah, nice? Podcast. <laughs> but anyways, if you want to follow our work, you can just search a weekly brewcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Also, you can subscribe to our website weeklybrewcast.com we've got some fun guests coming up here in the next few weeks uh yeah i think you're going to be really excited at the direction the podcast moves over the next few months but uh, jeremy it's always good to uh, get back and sit down have a few drinks and relax and podcast no actually actually drink for once because most of the time we're doing this show is so sober. cold sober yeah. absolutely yeah but, but this time two three drinks eh, it's fine it's nice <laughs> it's like well you remember our first episode we were, I think we were all, or at least I was. I'm gonna speak for myself. Um, we were all a little, a little out there. Well, that was our, that was the purpose of it. Yeah, but then we I realized know. people were actually we, listening. We were to sort us. of like, oh wait, people are listening. We got to get serious. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But times have changed. But uh, thanks again to you, Ben DeBose, for stopping by and joining us to talk a little bit of Rockets. And of course, Jeremy, thanks for stopping by. I guess our home away from home, which is Kirby Ice House. And uh, again, if you want to follow our co-host work, uh, Hunter Atkins, you can follow him on Twitter at Hunter Atkins Thirty Five. We'll have some content with Hunter here in the next few days as uh, he provides some updates on spring training as the Astros are uh, underway defending their title in West Palm Beach, Florida. But on behalf of my co-host Jeremy Paxson this week, my name's Austin Staten. We'll see you next week. You've been listening to The Weekly Brew.